Well, good morning for those it is morning. Recently, I was invited to speak at a missions conference down in Hertfordshire, in which I delivered two one-hour sessions through Matthew 24 and 25, what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. So I thought I would use that content with a little padding, preserving the emphasis on mission. And of course, I will include the bulk of the scriptures and timelines on the screen for your benefit. This is by no means a comprehensive exposition. We're going to be moving at speed, skimming a stone over, and no doubt I will take time to concentrate on various aspects in more detail at some point in the future. But I think there's something powerful about honoring the full scope of the message in just two to three hours. When considered as a whole, the beauty of the Olivet Discourse is that it exposes both the digestion system of the congregant and the methods of the preacher. And if you want to know what I mean, I will add a bonus thought at the end. Everyone is trying to predict the future, from the climate to crypto, and they go to YouTube gurus and palm readers and the medium at Endor, all the wrong places. Jesus gives us two chapters in his fifth and final major discourse. What a man has to say in the days leading up to his known death matters greatly. How much more when it's the Son of God? Are we listening? Throughout the discourse, there is a variation between second person and third person, as though Jesus's exhortation, descriptions, warnings and instructions are to a wider audience than the immediate disciples. These chapters are littered with doctrinal pointers. Doctrine matters, but it's the posture of your heart that is of my utmost concern during these two sessions. The heart's preparation for the return of the King, because your heart's posture determines how you go about God-given mission. So as we hear from the scriptures, I want you to have in mind the mission given to us from God, general mission and personal mission, and ask if we are prepared and preparing for his return. So with that said, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Now in the previous chapters, Jesus is rejected as Messiah, King of Israel. He offered himself to the people. He challenged the corruption of the priests. He foretold the judgment of the nation. He exposed the cowardice of the leaders. He employed parables to warn of the consequences of his rejection, and he masterfully escaped their traps, finally condemning the leadership in chapter 23. And he ends, at least in Matthew's account, with, you will not see me again until you say, Baruch Hababa Shem Adonai, blessed is him who comes in the name of the Lord, and he walks out. And here begins chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple had seen major renovation since its humble reconstruction after Babylonian captivity with the return of Ezra and the remnant. The puppet king, Herod the Great, was intent on leaving an impressive legacy of structures. You want to renovate the temple? Well, as the great, I will build it the greatest. So in 20 BC, he set about enlarging the compound and his son, Herod Antipas, had taken over at this point. 
Even today, when you walk around the 37-acre base, it's an impressive structure with some stones weighing hundreds of tons. And then you consider all that's left is the Temple Mount that it stood on, not the temple itself. The Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque were built more than a thousand years after this discourse. The Wailing Wall, the Western Wall where Jews congregate in prayer, is the Wall of the Mount, not the temple that stood upon it. So on this spring afternoon, the disciples who followed Jesus out of the temple are gazing at how it was adorned with noble stones, as it says in Luke 21. They have just witnessed Jesus' rejection and his condemnation of their nation's leaders, closing out his public ministry, and the next minute they are taken by the structures of a puppet king, even if its purpose is for holy orders. Are you taken? Even if it's your new church building, your new strategy, even if it's for the gospel, but are you taken with it more than you were taken by him? Jesus wept over the inward, but they were delighted over the outward appearance, taken by the strength of man. And Jesus smashes their thought pattern, not one stone upon another. These men had witnessed the temple be raised their whole lives, watching it grow in stages as they travelled to Jerusalem for the festivals. It was incomprehensible to foresee every stone thrown down. Just from a practical standpoint, it had taken nearly five decades up until this point to build up these stones. The phrase stone upon another is a reference to and a reversal of the rebuilding of the post-exilic temple and down with the pride of Herod and sons and those who cling to it. It's not just what we build, or how we build, or even who we build it for, but how we then look upon our own build. God can quickly tear down what he's helped you build. This is an Old Testament prophet-like statement that is either true, and Jesus is who he says he is, or he is a false prophet according to Torah. The temple was finished in AD 64, and as we know, by AD 70, Jerusalem was taken. And the likes of Josephus would detail who and how and why they removed every stone, some of which were recently excavated south of the mount. Yet, I do not believe that Jesus was prophesying about AD 70 throughout any point of Matthew 24, nor the parallel accounts in the Synoptic Gospels. Why? Well, the short answer is that this isn't the first time he spoke of this prophecy. His final two consecutive days of ministry in Jerusalem is bookended by this prophecy. So as he rides in on a colt in what we call the triumphal entry, although we should call it the foreshadow of the triumphal entry, the crowds of disciples shout, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are quoting Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Quoting this psalm in prayerful song is a confession of faith. 
They correctly identify who Jesus is. You are the promised seed, Messiah, King of Israel, the cornerstone. Shine upon us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Correct identity, wrong timing. The psalm is eschatological. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Then moments later, we read in Luke 19, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then he ends his ministry in Jerusalem by speaking of the blood of the prophets. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Affirming Psalm 118 is eschatological, in step with Hosea 5 that says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress earnestly seek me, which is eschatological. As he leaves the temple, he then says, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, reiterating what he said two days earlier. So the bookends of his final two days ministry in Jerusalem are, on entry, his followers say, blessed is him who comes in the name of the Lord. Then his followers say, this is the prophet Jesus. And then Jesus then says, not leave one stone upon another. And then on leaving, Jesus says, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. Then he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is him who comes in the name of the Lord. And then then he says, not be left here one stone upon another. In other words, by rejecting the cornerstone of Psalm 118, the temple will fall eschatologically. His comments on the stones on entry before his disciples mention the stones on the way out is an eschatological lament over Jerusalem. He knows he's about to receive his final rejection in ministry and that distress would come upon her, culminating in the years before his return. If his entry comments in the antecedent bookend is eschatological, his identical exit mention is also eschatological. They are reflective bookends. And it shouldn't surprise us. The thrust of Jesus' entire ministry is eschatological. All of his preaching was eschatological. His last two days of public ministry in Jerusalem is eschatological. Can I exhort you that in preparation for the coming king, we posture our hearts towards the coming king? Can I exhort you to think eschatologically? It will change the way you read the scriptures. It will change the way you execute mission because eschatology is the driver of mission. Even if you disagree with the presented view, please do not discard the application. Eyes off man's achievements, eyes on his achievements, that he came and is coming, 
don't forget the coming. Eschatology is a distraction from what? Your best life now? <laughs> if the gospel is gripping, how can you be disinterested in how the story ends? Since when did you develop a habit of turning off a movie before the climactic finale? How do you explain biblical hope to Jew or Gentile? I speak of the return of Jesus in street evangelism because it's the hope that we have. We bring them to the foot of the cross because it reorientates to his return. Mission is not just heading in any direction. We're all given different roles and visions and responsibility, yet we should be united as one in our orientation. The cross is the legal mechanism that paves the way for the hope. He didn't die so that you can live your best life now, but that you live your best life then. So when his disciples are taken by the grandeur of the temple, which epitomise the glory and the strength of man, they cannot disguise their own self-righteousness and the glory they saw in themselves. It's not bad in of itself, but it became a source of pride, even for the disciples. And Jesus then responds to this expression of pride by saying the pride of man will be demolished in eschatological suffering, which will include the destruction of Jerusalem. He doesn't refer to or describe events of AD 70 prophetically, which is intermediate temporal judgment, but rather weaves and expounds upon the prophetic scriptures that depict the calamities that will come upon the earth at the end of the age. What occurred in AD 70 does not match the picture Jesus paints, and his warnings and advice were not very helpful if he was referring to then. AD 70 was a foreshadow and a possible marker of the 1960 years prophecy of Leviticus 26, just as the destruction of Solomon's temple six and a half centuries earlier foreshadowed the climactic destruction. Even if the Babylonian siege was also prophesied, it points forwards. As well as affirming the narrative of the Old Testament prophets, his preparation of their hearts is to shake them from the self-deception of self-righteousness and the fantasy of self-grandeur, as if the condition of man is healthy. And Jesus is saying it is desperately sick and man's pride will accelerate and intensify during which time you must remain sober. He is who he says he is, just wait a little longer. By the time of his trial, word had spread that Jesus had threatened the destruction of the temple, whether they had heard of this prophecy or misunderstood his saying about his body being a temple that would be raised up in three days. They found it to be deeply unpatriotic. He's their rightful king. Right? He couldn't be any more patriotic. He's a Zionist. But when you call out the wickedness of a nation and call the nation to repent, warning of coming disaster, do not be surprised to be called unpatriotic, a traitor, a Zionist, not a zealot. I love my nation. I hate its wickedness, but I desire, no, I have faith that at the 11th hour, we will turn to the Lord and welcome him as the king of the Jews, the king of kings, and to participate in the Abrahamic global blessings. Preparation begins today. 
Now, when it comes to the Olivet Discourse and eschatology in general, there are as many opinions as there were stones of the temple. We have preterists. So preterist means bygone events. They point to AD 70 as fulfillment, with the second coming not for the world, but only to Israel in judgment. Then we have partial preterists. So there are different positions within these broad categories, but for partial preterists, up to verse 26, 29, or 36 is about AD 70, and the latter verses are future. Then we have various historicist or futurist positions, some seeing the body of chapter 24 referring to a struggle throughout the church age, followed by the second coming. Others see AD 70 as a sign that the great tribulation and second coming will be fulfilled. Still others see a dual fulfillment that it speaks of both events in AD 70 and future events at the second coming. Then we have the consistent futurist. So chapters 24 and 25 refer to a future time for us. And this is the perspective through which I will view these chapters. And if so, then these chapters are highly applicable to us, particularly if Jesus returns in our lifetimes. And if not, we disciple our children to be prepared. But I suspect he's coming sooner than most think. There is a time gap between verse 2 and verse 3. The time it takes for Jesus to walk from the temple east up the Mount of Olives as the new David who left the city in lamentation after rejection. Verse 2 closes out the section that began in chapter 21. Without the presence of the Lord in their midst, how can the temple function as purposed? Ezekiel's vision in chapters 10 and 11 describes the presence of the Lord leaving the temple and giving Israel one heart and a new spirit, which appears eschatological, but the way it describes the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city is very similar to Jesus leaving the temple, walking up the Mount of Olives. The end of the age is not referring to the end of the old covenant redemptive system in the first century, as some have suggested. Likewise, prediction of destruction does not mean the end of the temple and the city of Jerusalem and AD 70 swallowing up its history. There will likely be a third temple and eschatological discipline before the millennial temple. The Holy Spirit dwelling in our bodies as temples or living stones forming a spiritual temple does not abrogate the necessity for a physical temple. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He sits as a rabbi would do, and Mark informs us it is four disciples who asked him privately, brothers Peter and Andrew and brothers James and John. Jesus is facing the east side of the temple, a 470 meter panoramic view of the mount. You can't miss it on the Mount of Olives. That is the backdrop of conversation, and that should be our backdrop of conversation. It is, after all, where the Lord is ultimately returning to. He's not coming back to Manchester, but to establish the city of peace, for the Lord has chosen Zion. The Olivet Discourse is delivered before the temple, suggesting this most sought-after real estate is the eschatological battleground. 
There are two, not three questions that are connected. The second is made up of two connected bits. Mark and Luke combine these two together, showing the second part is one question. Now, admittedly, they are naturally concerned for their own circumstances if the temple were thrown down immediately. But it's more than that. With this prediction of judgment against Jerusalem, they likely have Zechariah's prophecy in mind. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives." You can understand their concern. This siege of Jerusalem in Zechariah 14 is the great tribulation to come before the second coming and salvation of Israel and the establishment of his kingdom. Daniel 2 connects the desolation of the city and the sanctuary with the eschatological time of the end. Rooted in scripture, their question is what tribulation will unfold that will cause Israel to repent, to call upon his name, to return as their king. They're aware of the two aspects of Messiah from the scriptures and rabbinic literature, even the two comings, but not the timing nor the mystery and possibility of a third temple. Naive to the timing with Passover imminent, they connected their situation with the future coming, thematically connecting the destruction of the temple with the coming of Jesus and the end of the age. Their questions are based on their perspective at the time. So from their Jewish apocalyptic worldview, they're asking, what is the sign that this age will end and the messianic age of his coming kingdom begins? When and what sign of the transition from the kingdom of Satan to the glory and the power of the kingdom of Messiah? And that is the shape of this chapter. Concern about present obstacles and danger should drive our questions of prayer to aim for the messianic age, calling upon the name of the Lord. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The Olivet Discourse is an exposition of Daniel's 70th week of years prophecy, a seven-year unit positioned at the end of the age. So verses 4 to 8 expounds upon the first half of the final week of years of history. From Daniel 9, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. It begins with a seven-week period followed by a 62-week period. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
Daniel gives us a total of 70 weeks or 70 periods of sevens commonly understood to be years without going into the differing calculations from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah's first coming there were 69 weeks with one remaining week of years which will be fulfilled in the final week of years of this age. Daniel continues and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. That's verse 27. Some will then connect the prince to come with the Antichrist who makes or affirms a covenant with Israel, asserting himself as a world leader, concealing his true identity for the first half of the week. This then would be a sign of the start of the week. However, Jesus doesn't mention this as a sign. Revelation 2 doesn't mention it. And as Paul indicates in 2 Thessalonians, Antichrist is revealed midweek and therefore we couldn't be sure. I'm open but not dogmatic to this possibility. The first characterization of the first three and a half years is false Christs. Previously, he'd warned of false disciples, ravenous wolves in chapter 7, but here it is false Christs, something far more dangerous, not just a pew warmer or a leader of a local congregation, but a false saviour, a false groom, a false anointed king of Israel. When desperation rises, so do false saviours. False Christs reorientate you and lead you away from your missionary path into darkness. As chaos ensues with all kinds of spiritual deception, the stage is being set for Israel to call for Messiah once again, but call upon whom is the concern of Jesus. His discourse, in part, is a polemic against first-century Jewish zealotry and their false expectation of the coming kingdom. So jumping ahead here to verse 26, the phrase is, look, he is in the wilderness, look, he is in the inner rooms are zealot phrases. So out in the wilderness, the zealots would mastermind to overthrow Rome in Maccabean fashion, leading astray those who were zealous for the law to join forces and with the strength of man, they could bring about the glorious kingdom. Now the latter chapters of Torah are vital in understanding Matthew 24. So in chapters 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy, Israel is warned that if you obey and do all his commandments, the covenantal blessings shall come upon them. If they do not obey, then the curses shall come upon them. Then in Deuteronomy 30, and when all these things come upon you, meaning they will, and you call them to mind and return to the Lord your God, he will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and gather you. All biblical prophetic literature then follows this pattern of covenant breaking, curses and calamity, crying out to God, rescue and restoration, all of which ultimately and apocalyptically point to the culmination of calamity and sudden rescue at the end of the age. Here's a good hermeneutical principle. If a prophecy hasn't been fulfilled, it means it hasn't been fulfilled yet. <laughs> We're not required to force secular history to rhyme with the scriptures. Wait for it. The problem with man is that we don't want to obey and we don't want the curses. 
The Jewish crowds would shout away with this man and release to us Barabbas, the insurrectionist. They wanted the strength of the zealot to bring about the messianic glory, not the messianic tribulation. In editing the prophetic narrative, the zealots remove the calamity of curses. To them, the messianic tribulation belongs centuries past, and from here on out, we will rise up and up, and in their arrogance and self-righteousness as law keepers, in their strength, they could launch the kingdom and the age to come. Not only is the Western church largely blind to the centrality of Israel within the narrative, we have a tendency to commit all our woes to AD 70, the Dark Ages, or any other period before my own era. We're building the kingdom and it's going to be bigger and slicker and we can unhitch from the unhelpful, negative Old Testament prophets, oblivious to the coming calamity and its coming. The previous two years should have been a sobering period for the church and instead were mostly silent to what matters, drumming harder to the world's consumeristic tune with our kingdom now, prosperity now, bigger platform now theologies. Under the banner of realised eschatology, the church has fallen asleep to the wand of the world. And much of what Jesus says here is do not get lost and intoxicated on the spirit of this age's indulgencies because the strength of man will be exposed and the pride of man will be brought low. He will test whose strength you abide by. Now, on the other hand, Jesus chose Simon the Zealot. Zealots are feisty, but if you can steer that zealotry in the right direction, you're onto a fast runner. I'll take the sons of thunder over a couple of pencil necks any day. <laughs> I'm speaking of the heart here, you understand. Apathy and underactive knowledge is tough to disciple. False personas did arise. Thuadas, who rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. That's Acts 5. We read in Acts 21, the Egyptian, then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. There was Simon bar Kochba who led a revolt against Rome in AD 132 to 135. There was Zabatai Zevi. There was Jacob Frank of Poland in the 18th century and plenty of Gentile messiahs too. All kinds of false messiahs have come and gone, some political, others cult-driven. Some may call themselves Messiah, others Jesus or Yeshua. Others will present themselves as saviors, but not necessarily identify with biblical terminology. His focus is the culmination of false Christs at the end of the age. And therefore, Jesus begins with exhortation. Above all, before we get into it, in desperation of hope, see that no one leads you astray. How many preachers begin with exhortation? Don't do this. <laughs> How would that work with three points in a poem? <laughs> Between verses 5 to 12, Jesus uses the word many in a negative sense six times. 
He's telling us that many people will follow many charlatans, involving themselves in many things, following many movements, believing many words to fill many chambers of Sheol. Don't be part of the many dismembered limbs. Participate as members in the body. Over the previous two years, God's kindness has been on display, graciously gifting the church a glimpse of things to come and an opportunity to alter our posture accordingly, from frozen bank accounts to disinformation being defined as terrorism. Cancel culture will become cancel the people of the book culture. We need to be emotionally prepared to suffer for him. The second characterization of the first half of the week is hearing of wars and rumours of wars. Rumours can make you behave strangely. Rumours of a virus can cause people to hoard toilet roll. <laughs> rumours of wars can make you want to flee, but not yet. His second exhortation then is, see that you are not alarmed. If you are alarmed easily at every rumour, you will not trust anyone. You'll constantly be ducking every whisper of danger. You will become unstable in mind and spirit and run off the track of mission. It's the media's job to keep you alarmed. Don't do the media's job for them. <laughs> Rumours can cause unnecessary activity that burns up the oil of preparation. Listen to the small, still voice of God. The dawning of the apocalyptic transition will entail trauma, but see that you are not traumatised by rumours. And this should be an encouragement. He's saying, I've got you. I know that food is scarce. I've got you. I know it's troublesome times. I've got you. False messiahs, false alarm. In contrast to local wars and rumours, this idonym of nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, in context indicates a world war. The first two world wars set the stage for the final week, causing a huge growth in the Zionist movement which led to the State of Israel in 1948 and the control of Jerusalem in 1967. Jesus is lightly referring to Isaiah 19, an oracle concerning Egypt in the end times. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Could a dispute between Egypt, Sudan and Ethiopia over the massive hydroelectric dam that's been built on the river Nile be a catalyst to worldwide conflict? These kingdoms in conflict could be the four beasts of Daniel 7. The third characterization is famine, which we'll address in the second part, and earthquakes. We have the political, but also the natural. The earth is groaning under the bondage of sin. The fact that Jesus includes natural disasters proves that God is ultimately behind these judgments. Famine is an expression of God's indignation, anticipating greater judgment. Earthquakes are reserved for the most climactic moments. He will not only shake the people, but he will shake the earth. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. That's Isaiah 24. In shaking the earth, he shakes the people. 
for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Haggai 2. The author of Hebrews quotes this passage. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12. Luke includes pestilences. We cannot rule out man-made venom. Sorry, I meant virus. Inspired by Satan, ultimately ruled over and brought about by God in judgment. With a distortion to the topography of the nations, displacement of possibly hundreds of millions of people during food shortages, Mark adds as a transition into the second half of the week, but be on your guard. In other words, brace yourselves for persecution. Do not get comfy. These things that we rely on, the NHS, the courts to provide democratic justice, relative internet freedom, etc., will not be there for us. With the introduction of the online safety bill, the WHO treaty, and so forth, as they take down our platforms, we must find alternative platforms. Our mission strategies must be sturdy enough to stand, but agile enough to adapt to the acceleration of evil towards the end of the age. Things are going to get messy, necessarily for the bride to be sanctified and functioning correctly so that the fruit of her mission is multiplied exponentially. The first three characterizations or signs correspond to the first three seals of Revelation. So the first seal, deception by false messiahs. The second, wars and chaos. The third, famine and economic collapse. These three, of course, correspond with the first three of four horses in Revelation 6. So the first horse, the white horse, messianic counterfeit. The second, red horse, war and bloodshed. The third, the black horse, price fixing, leading to starvation which also likely corresponds to the four spirits of heaven of Zechariah 6. These signs are not given for the sake of curiosity, but for practical application of his hearers, which now also include us as we peer into the text removed some 2,000 years. The apostles are familiar with the birth pains metaphor from the Tanakh and rabbinical literature that would refer to the labour pain of Messiah. Eve was told, in pain you shall bring forth. Sin caused the pain of birth of new life, and sin has caused the pains of tribulation before birth of the new heavens and the new earth. They would be well aware of Jeremiah 30. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labour? Why has every face turned pale? They would be aware of Isaiah's use of this metaphor. 
They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labour. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Isaiah 13. The pains increase as the birth gets closer. It starts with the Braxton Hicks and then the labour begins. Contractions get closer together and stronger in intensity before the moment of new birth. From Isaiah 26, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. They understood a period of increasing distress and tribulation that would come upon the Jewish nation and world prior to the birthing of God's kingdom at the resurrection. The first century has been said to contain the conditions of the birth pains. There were false messiahs and false prophets, according to Josephus. Throughout the Roman Empire, there were wars and rumours of wars, according to Josephus and Philo and Tacitus and Suetonius. Tacitus wrote of famines and earthquakes. Acts mentions a famine that reaches Judea. Josephus says Jerusalem felt an earthquake during this time and wrote of strange celestial occurrences in the skies, including lightning, sword-shaped comets, and clouds of chariots. Yet these things have occurred throughout history to a lesser degree than the actual birth pains to come. Jesus warns against false starts by saying, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. If the rest of the signs do not come with increasing measure and speed, it is not a fulfilment. Jesus hasn't come again if you didn't see the specific signs of the second half of the tribulation, which we'll come on to. And with his arrival, a plague of hundred-pound hailstones, the rivers and sea turned to blood, islands sunk and the mountains made low, and a third of the earth and the trees are burned up, a third of mankind killed by plagues. Have we seen that yet? The birth pain metaphor makes sense within a period of seven years, rather than over many centuries, even stretching back to the first coming. A generation will experience the whole birth from first birth pains to agony and final delivery. Interestingly, Isaiah 66 reads, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth? Did the birth pause at AD 70 and not bring forth? No, it will come in the final consecutive seven years immediately after the crescendo of pain. In stark contrast to a secular worldview that everything gradually gets better over time, the biblical worldview is that comfort does not determine the betterhood of man. You know, when my wife was in the early stages of labour with our first child at home, she said to me, it's getting really painful now. And I replied, it's only going to get worse. <laughs> She laughed, actually. She laughed. She knows my character. I'm a straight shooter. She laughed. It helped with the pain. <laughs> it's only going to get worse before new birth, suffering before glory, night before day. As the disciples couldn't contemplate the destruction of the temple, we can't contemplate the birth pains to come, having lived in relative luxury and stability. 
It will be an intensely challenging time physically and spiritually for the church. Yet Jesus is saying, if you trust me, don't be troubled. Verses 9 to 14 are, I understand, a summary of the Great Tribulation, the second half of the final week. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You won't be popular in the eyes of the world. If the world loves you, I doubt it's for his name's sake. Not controversial for the sake of controversy, not one end of the political spectrum or the other, not on the side of the media and the globalists, neither the zealot insurrectionists. You know, I'm thankful for those who push back against evil agendas, the political corruption, the medical fraud. I speak out where I can. We're not passive wimps. But remember, we're not hated because we're fighting for a democracy, but hated because we call upon the name of Jesus to establish his theocracy. Hated by all nations. This is the definition of anti-Semitism. Even if Israel doesn't know it, it's because of their and our coming king that the nations rage. Deliver up or hand over is the same language used for John the Baptist and of Jesus and of his followers in chapter 10. It wouldn't be long until Stephen became the first martyr. Deliver you up and put you to death and then read the confessional of Romans 4. Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus is conveying a shared destiny between the way of the disciples and the way of the master. Jesus alludes to the family betrayal in Micah 6, not to generate paranoia, but to stir preparation. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and man's enemies are the men of his own house. Yet it continues with, but as for me, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation, my God will hear me. The Inquisition and Holocaust provide examples of betrayal. The distinguishing marks of love and concern turns to hatred and repudiation. Martyrdom by betrayal, by the one who helped you build, the one you allowed to see your vulnerabilities, and they sell you out for 30 pieces of silver and kiss you on the cheek as if they won't hang. But as they give us up, the heavenly father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. To choose to follow Jesus is to choose to give up our lives, willingly shoulder a cross after him, with courage to confess him before others, if necessary, unto death. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness, and he will give you a mouth and wisdom. Only true believers will choose martyrdom over renunciation. Matthew's experience of persecution places him well to write this scripture. 
You have experienced a unique life, well-placed for the path that God has called you for such a time as this. They fall away firstly because they were hated. Secondly, they fall away because of false prophets who play on the fears and the hopes within the chaotic, fertile breeding ground. Create a problem, generate fear, provide solution. Let us purge out the false teaching now. Evolutionism, replacement theology, realized eschatology are my top three. If you go into the final seven years with a twisted framework of understanding, you will be led astray more easily. And people will turn to all kinds of individuals and groups, the powerful, the secret, the local rebels, the celebrity hero. Government is your saviour. Science is your saviour. Elon Musk will save us. He'll sort Twitter, heal the climate, save the economy with Dogecoin and take us to a new planet. Beware of multi-billionaires bearing gifts. I appreciate the likes of Jordan Peterson who cuts through some of the nonsense of the world but I'm not latching myself onto him for spiritual leadership. We have to be careful in navigating mission amidst the Eastern and African religions and the Anglo philosophies and the secular worldviews and the Western ideologies. They're all kitted out with false prophets. The world is obsessed with dividing society, vaxxed, unvaxxed, Ukraine, Russia, black, white, climate activists, climate denial, Jew, Gentile. And in doing so, the church is sliced in the process. And it's the body of the bride who is the target. Because a king without an orderly, alert, obedient people means he cannot wed and establish his kingdom. You do realise that you can pause before jumping on the bandwagon. <laughs> like you don't have to be trigger happy. Generally speaking, it's okay to take, to take a day or a month to discern. Jesus doesn't say, remember to change your profile pic to include the latest sticker to ensure you are virtue signaling as loud as the many. <laughs> I support the current thing like a Marxist robot. With discernment, guard the garden. Thirdly, they fall away because of lawlessness. They grow cold, not because of rioting and criminal activity. They grow cold with the lawless culture of the world. And once that fire is extinguished in the disciple, they are able to betray. Paul spoke of the mystery of lawlessness already at work. But once the restrainer is removed, lawlessness abounds, with many following the man of lawlessness. Has this lawlessness already penetrated the church? In Revelation 2, the church of Ephesus maintained doctrinal integrity, guarding from false teachers, enduring patiently, not growing weary, and yet... Their lampstand was in threat of being removed because they had lost that intimacy of first love. You realise that you can follow Torah in practice, but if your heart is cold towards Yeshua it speaks of, you are practising lawlessness. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, not just all your might. Otherwise, it's a frosty Shema. Who is saved? It's not the one who endures for a while, is it? 
It's not the one who's had a good run but bails out, but the one who endures to the end. It's not how you start. When you were born, you came out naked and bloody and crying, and spiritual birth can be a beautiful mess too. It's not how you start, you can wander the desert for 40 years, it's how you finish and whether you are accepted into the promised land. The two key clauses are for my name's sake and the one who endures to the end will be saved, not enduring for your own name and branding. Endure can be translated as stand firm. How long must we forgive? 70 times 7. How long must we stand firm? 70 times 7. To the end of the age, alluding to Daniel's prophecy, which says, Go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. If you stand now, you will stand then. The closer we get to the end, the faster the river flows. Expect to be called too serious an alarmist, an extremist, even cultish. You see, the faster the river flows, the more you appear to be moving to an extreme position, when in fact you are standing firm on his word. It is them who are moving faster and faster, caught in the weeds and the trash and the poison of the waters. Standing firm not only means salvation, but the only means through which the gospel will be taken to all nations against all the odds. False messiahs, false prophets, shaking of the earth, we stand firm. To endure is to continue your witness in the midst of ferocious antagonism. Hated by all nations, so that you are persecuted, so that you will bear witness, so that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. The response to persecution and brothers falling away is to witness to all nations that he came and is coming. A witness that is good news to the afflicted and a summons of the nations. Did Israel fail in her mission? Are we not singing his praises in far-off lands? Are we not reading the words of the New Testament apostles? We are testimony that Yeshua is Israel's Messiah King. You see, a dozen or so faithful people can be used by God to take the good news of the kingdom into Europe and Asia and beyond, and we have picked up the baton to run the race. Generally speaking, the more comfortable your life is, the less chance the gospel is going forth to all nations. Brace yourselves. The coming years will bear the most fruit they will. Which raises the question, what is the gospel of the kingdom? If we don't know what the kingdom is, we don't know what the good news of it is. And I want to challenge some of you to go away and consider. The kingdom has not yet come. In the West, we tend to think of the kingdom as something mostly spiritual rather than physical. But the biblical definition of a proper functioning kingdom is a righteous people who dwell in a defined area of land with a righteous law, with a present physically reigning and ruling worthy law-giving king and its people willingly subject to the king and his law. Without all elements in place, the kingdom has not come. It's a very real kingdom, not an ab abstract concept aligning with platonic thinking. 
Considering that Jesus is pointing to the book of Daniel, Daniel 2 and 7 depict the coming kingdom arriving as sudden, dramatic, devastating, global, arriving after the revival of the fourth beast, the ten and the little horn who prevails over the saints. Far from progressively dominating, when all seems lost, he comes. If the kingdom had arrived, why did the apostles ask just before the ascension, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom is earthly, future, after the tribulation. Heaven is not our long-term home, the earth is. The kingdom has not arrived until you see dolphins following surfers riding the Dead Sea waves, right? Because it will be fresh water. The kingdom was lost in Eden. Israel came the closest. It was in their grasp at the first coming, but rejected. Jesus will be accepted and succeed when he returns and restores the kingdom to Israel and extends his reign and rule around the globe. Now, why do I point this out? Because when tribulation hits home, you're going to be incredibly disillusioned if you think we are advancing or building the kingdom. There is a tension between mission and rights. Man handed over much of his rights to Satan in the garden, but was still commissioned, meaning suffering and frustration in mission. The context of verse 14, with the gospel going forth, is suffering and pain. This pattern of tribulation before glory echoes throughout the Bible. It characterizes redemptive history. Luxury is not the norm. Tribulation is the norm. He is functioning as prophet as he delivers this discourse on the Mount of Olives. On ascension, he's now functioning as priest in heaven. And this discourse is about what plays out for Jesus to return to function as king. Jesus then expounds on two key signs before the sign of his coming. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. 
The abomination of desolation is the primary sign of the week. Simply put, midway through the seven years, a ruler, Antichrist, gathers his army to put an end to the sacrifices and offerings in the temple. The same ruler who makes a covenant at the commencement of the seven years, if it is referring to Antichrist. The temple is then desecrated by setting up an abominable image. This desecration will continue until Jesus returns in judgment, indicating some form of temple structure to be built. This too would be a sign leading up to the abomination of desolation. There is space on the mount north of the Dome of the Rock, opposite the Golden Gate, possibly the original place of the temple. During Greek occupation, Antiochus IV invaded Jerusalem. Jewish life was forbidden. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. He claimed the title Epiphanes, meaning God revealed. This is when Matityahu and sons, a priestly family, rallied the troops and heroically fought against this desolation. They became known as the Maccabees. It took three years to miraculously overthrow the Greco-Syrian army. The eight-day festival Hanukkah is celebrated each year to remember this time in history and the rededication of the temple. Jesus, however, is speaking here some 200 years after this event, saying when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. There were foreshadows, but there is only one mentioned more than once in Daniel. Chapters 8, 9 and 10 speak of the abomination of desolation. He expects his disciples to understand Daniel's prophecies regarding this event. We read in Daniel 9, And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Paul expounded upon this, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless... The rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2 meaning the Antichrist comes and is revealed to the church before the rapture resurrection. Now, what does this mean for the Jewish people? Well, firstly, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Arrhenius, writing just decades after AD 70, quoted this passage of fleeing, placing it firmly at the end of time. Urgency is key. Don't try to save the temple like the Maccabees in this situation. Don't join the future zealots under the phrase, never again. This is a time of flight. He gives two images, a Middle Eastern roof, which is a common patio area, and a field. Drop everything and parkour across the rooftops. If in a field, don't go back for a coat, even if it's necessary for daily survival in winter. He's telling you that if you disobey and you go back for comforts, if you rely on yourself for protection, you will perish. But from here on out, I will be your covering. 
trust me as Yahweh provider. And he will give them wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a times and half a time, three and a half years. Jesus gives three practical, difficult situations to consider. Firstly, if pregnant, which is obvious. Secondly, if in winter conditions, there could be snow, there could be flash floods, carrying rocks running through dry riverbeds, which kill hikers every year in Israel. And thirdly, if it's the Sabbath, well, public transport, roads, shops could be shut down. They may have to flee on foot, making those who are pregnant suffer more. Practical warnings for practical preparation. Secondly, it means the great tribulation and specifically Jacob's trouble has begun. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, Jeremiah 30. The trouble is for Jacob, as in the tribes of Israel. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Something more devastating than the Holocaust is coming. Unprecedented testing, unprecedented persecution, unparalleled apostasy, unparalleled lawlessness, unparalleled deception. Before the full extent of the Deuteronomic blessings, the full extent of the Deuteronomic curses come upon Israel. Satan will have his last burst this side of the transition of ages to annihilate the subjects of the king to the Jew first. Satan knows what a kingdom is biblically. He knows that a land with a law and a king but no people means no kingdom. And therefore, he seeks to rob and kill and destroy the Jewish people so that the Jewish king has no kingdom. Israel must come under exhaustion, exhausted of political leaders who promise, exhausted of false prophets and false messiahs, exhausted of wars and rumors of wars, exhausted to the point they call upon the name of the Lord. And Zechariah tells us that in the whole land, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. This third of the Jewish people, he will put through the refiner's fire. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. It will entail unprecedented persecution for both the church and the remnant of Israel. Jesus wants you to know that your testing will not go on a second longer than necessary. The great birth pains will be cut short by a caesarean section, so to speak. Cut short for the church who are raptured. Daniel doesn't say Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, will be three and a half years. Jacob's trouble is cut short in the sense that Jesus comes to rescue the remnant over a period of time, like Noah on a boat for a year or so, in which the power of Antichrist will be limited before crushed. Tribulation becomes great tribulation, signs becomes great signs, rumours of wars becomes rumours of his return. Jesus sounds the alarm for the third time on false personas. The crescendo is building. Here we have false Christs and false prophets back to back as if they are connected and complementary. 
False Christs and false prophets, plural, climax in the Antichrist and the false prophet. Paul spoke of the wonders of this duo. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false. 2 Thessalonians 2. Revelation 13 details the false prophet depicted as another beast who enforces the mark of the first beast. They perform so as to lead astray. Expect BBC News to film it and applaud it. The phrase signs and wonders is connected with the exodus of Egypt, which is most prominent in the minds of the Jewish people, and therefore they could be led astray by such reenactments. You're aware that within various streams of Islamic eschatology, there is an expectation of the Mahdi who appears with a Jesus-like figure. What if men arise in their name doing signs and wonders? See that no one leads you astray. Has the church already been enticed by showiness? Do we not demand to be entertained in church? Have we not abused the gifts of the Spirit? The showier the stage, the harder it is to distinguish truth from false. They are setting up a great falling away. But it's not just the showy ones. Some of us have become obsessed with appearing respectable before men, that we've starved the raw power of those naturally clothed with camel's hair, frightened of what might be said about us, we have a famine of wild honey-eating men who will not be swayed by the purse, social mobs, nor centuries-old institution. Jesus cared for neither showiness nor respectability before men. Prophets of God performed authenticating signs, but having been warned by Jesus, we cannot bet our salvation on future signs and wonders. Is this David Copperfield? Is this from God? Is this from the devil? Is it man-made? Is it God-made? Is it a demonic-made wonder? Spiritual discernment to detect the impostors. Read the truth, detect the counterfeit. The elect is not immune to deceitful counterfeit, but we have the spiritual resources to resist. In contrast to messiahs hidden in the desert, in contrast to perhaps televised signs and wonders, a beam of light across the sky. He's referencing Zechariah 9. Then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. In contrast to the first coming, the second will be unmistakable, sudden, dramatic, thunderous, visible to all, undisputable. No one will need to tell another. Rumours are rumours. The Son of Man is Jesus' favourite title for himself because he's identifying with the Son of Man of Daniel. He's saying, I am Daniel's cloud rider. The abomination of desolation and its aftermath corresponds to the fourth seal of revelation and the fourth 
pale horse. The martyrdom and apostasy correspond to the fifth seal of Revelation. The sixth seal releases the celestial signs. The rapture resurrection takes place, I understand, before the seventh seal, which contains the trumpets and bowls, which is why he doesn't mention the trumpets and bowls, because they only asked about the signs leading up to his coming at the end of the age, not the wrath of God that would be poured out after he returns. Jesus then finally answers with their question of what is the sign of your coming? A two-part sign, including a timing indicator. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, when? Immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The celestial signs set the stage like a theatre before the main act. The curtains closing, the lights are turned down before the dramatic appearance. This darkness anticipates the light of the Son of Man. Compare with Revelation 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Some will argue it's nonsense that stars would fall as one star would destroy the planet. Well, it could be meteors, asteroids, burning debris falling to the earth causing smoke and darkness and earthquakes. It is literal, not hyper-literal, but descriptive literal of what will happen. The people of the world will faint with fear. We should have done more to tackle climate change, they'll say. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The people of God are encouraged. Now, when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That's Luke 21. Not doom scrolling on our phones, right? Raised heads. A few weeks ago, I was playing with my kids when I remembered to add a note in my phone about this conference I was going to speak at. When my two-year-old boy said to me, Daddy, phone down. <laughs> he knows when I'm not paying attention, and the Lord sure does. You know, we can look down in self-love or self-pity of tribulation around us, rather than looking up in mind, heart, soul, strength. Raised heads is to think eschatologically. Having ran the race, pressing towards the goal of resurrection and eternal life, we will one day literally raise our heads in joy of the sight of the Son of Man. We can disagree 
over the timing of the rapture. I really don't think there should be division over that. We're on the same team. Let's discuss and debate while we break bread together. But if we are practicing daily dying to ourselves, what does it matter to enter great tribulation? The second part is a sign in heaven. It must be a sign that the Jewish people would recognize a star, a cross, more likely a pillar of cloud with thunderous lightning. Notice he comes on the clouds, not a horse at this stage. If we compare Matthew 24 with Revelation 19, we see that Jesus comes on the clouds in Matthew 24, whereas in Revelation 19, Jesus rides a white horse. Jesus blows a trumpet in Matthew 24. Jesus has a sword coming from his mouth in Revelation 19. Jesus comes with angels in Matthew 24, whereas in Revelation 19, Jesus is followed by the saints on white horses. In Matthew 24, Jesus comes to gather the elect, whereas in Revelation 19, Jesus comes with the elect to destroy Antichrist. Revelation 19 appears to be sometime after the initial appearing in Matthew 24 during the day of the Lord. Some argue that the coming in Matthew 24 refers to AD 70 and his coming was through the Roman armies. No, it will be the personal and bodily return of Jesus as the angels in Acts 1 state. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Not mystically through armies. You are confusing Jesus with legion. The cross was the prerequisite of the eschatological mourning. They pierced one of their own family. How the tribe of Judah especially will mourn mourning of remorse. Zechariah identifies the tribes who mourn belonging to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to which God will pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The rejected shepherd of Zechariah 11, the shepherd killed by the sword of Zechariah 13, becomes their comforting king, mighty to save. Distinct from Jewish followers of Jesus today, they repent upon the sight of him. They will say, blessed is him who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the third part of the promise to Abraham can only be fulfilled once the first two parts are fulfilled. He scattered the believing elect for global evangelism and discipleship at his ascension and on descension he gathers the fruit of his elect in a harvest to his presence in the rapture resurrection mentioned in Daniel 12. This is the start of the day of the Lord. This is the resurrection and what Paul called the mystery of the translation of the living. At the trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and we will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. There have been various scatterings and gatherings of the national elect Israel, scattered in intermediate judgment, gathered 
to the land for final tribulational judgment and he will gather the remnant who mourn upon his sight in a series of events during the day of the Lord. Psalm 110 speaks of the birth. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Jesus could have stopped there. It was Passover season. They could see some sprouting figs, so he illustrates from his surroundings. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that tea is near. At the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There are three parts to the lesson. Firstly, this is not about 1948 or 67, although setting the stage for his return. The fig tree could be symbolic of Israel, as it does in various Old Testament passages, and the phrase all the trees of Luke's version being symbolic of the rest of the nations. But it's as simple as when you see these things come upon Israel and the nations like shoots coming upon a tree, they are the harbinger of summer, his appearance. As surely as summer follows spring, so the day of the Lord will quickly follow the great tribulation. Luke's version says, you will know that the kingdom of God is near, which means the kingdom isn't near yet. <laughs> Secondly, all these things is a phrase woven from Daniel 12 and Deuteronomy, which says, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. This generation does not mean a 40-year window. It is not quantitative, but transhistorical qualitative, negative in characteristic and spiritual condition. Throughout his ministry, Jesus weaves the expression of this evil, crooked, twisted, perverse generation from Deuteronomy. It's the age-enduring offspring of the serpent. The gospel is bad news to this generation, and so national repentance is required. So when you see it, you will see it if you're awake and ready, this wicked generation who are blind will not pass away until all these things he's just spoken of and expounded upon from the Old Testament take place. Thirdly, Jesus is saying, you can rely on my prediction. The threefold use of pass away his words will not. Finally, then for today, Jesus paints three pictures of being caught out by that day. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. 
Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jerusalem is the nucleus of redemptive history, yet drawing upon the judgment of Noah's day reveals a ripple effect in testing and judgment on a global scale. The father is choosing a beautiful global bride and therefore she must mature globally. The flood and the exodus point to something greater to come. What is about to play out will far exceed any biblical scale that has ever occurred. Noah was taken, Lot was taken on that day immediately before the wrath of God is poured out. The days of Noah are characterised by this generation who are determined to pervert God's distinct boundaries, going about their daily business unsuspecting of the sudden flood. You wonder why people can't see what is happening today. Well, Noah effectively had a three-storey, 500-foot sign. And like then, they will not recognise the signs. They are under delusion. They're not privy to the programme. And even when day turns black and panic hits, some will still continue their wedding day or order another drink at the bar. He presents a pair of images of the field and mill workers when separation occurs. At creation, God separated the light from the darkness, the waters below from the waters above, the land from the sea and so forth. And now at the dawn of new creation, he separates the wheat from the chaff. To separate is to distinguish one from another. Naming is part of separating, defining roles and purpose. As he called the light day, he will call you wholly distinct from the common, clean distinct from the unclean. To divide and distinguish means he is the creator lawgiver. And who can challenge him? He divides, selects and prepares the way for new life and blessing. The third image is wrapped in exhortation. The rapture that commences the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night and those unprepared will suffer loss of rewards when he comes unexpectedly. Jesus urges us then to stay awake and be ready. Awake to what? The redemptive blueprint kindly given to us. Awake to world events to see how his plan is progressing. To stay awake is to live differently from the world. Peter, John and Paul refer back to this image of a thief warning and encouraging that we are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief as labour pains. They will not escape, but we are not in darkness for that day to surprise. As children of light, let us not sleep, let us be sober, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Watch to escape. Escape what? Not the tribulation, but escape the wrath of God unto rapture and salvation. Jesus spends the rest of the discourse describing what preparation for the coming of the Lord looks like, which we'll look at in part two. You can only be ready 
if you are awake. And if you knew the thief was coming, you would stay awake. Most of the church is asleep because they think the thief came in AD 70. And so they are neither watching nor ready. Watchfulness and readiness is central to the commemoration night of Passover in expectation of messianic deliverance, the connection of which would not be lost on the disciples. We are to remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Jesus cautions us not to predict the start of the day of the Lord. We know it will be within three and a half years of the abomination of desolation, but not the day or hour. Now, I am aware that some have suggested the phrase that day and hour no one knows is a reference to Rosh Hashanah and the Feast of Trumpets, and therefore the date was unknown in the sense that until the moon was sighted by the Sanhedrin, who then officially declared the new month to have arrived, we could not know for sure the day and hour, but unofficially we could know the day. But I'm not aware of an original source that demonstrates this, and so I will take Jesus' plain words and the warning with it until decisively shown otherwise. I follow the thoughts of some of the early church fathers who believed this age will end around the 6,000-year mark with the millennial rest to come. The creation week set the patterns that include the week of millennia, pointing to Psalm 90, 2 Peter and Hosea 5 and 6. We must be close to the end. If you watch a movie starting from the last seven minutes, you would experience dramatic action and thrilling events, but you wouldn't grasp what is happening. Likewise, if you do not comprehend the story of the Bible and the signs it declares will take place in the run-up to Jesus' return, you will be panicked and afraid, confused, wavering in faith. We are close and we are required to understand approximately where we are on God's redemptive clock, what he is orchestrating throughout the earth and how we can join in his mission. Today is the day to watch, to ready ourselves, to pray and to search ourselves and ask why is great tribulation decreed to come upon the earth and what is within my own posture that toes the world's line so that it must be brought low? Now, for this conference, I had written a closing prayer and before it included six quick points of preparation with an emphasis on mission. And for your edification, I will include those here also. Preparation for the coming King includes one mission based on the strength of Christ and his achievement, what he did, what he's doing, what he will do. Secondly, the propellant of mission is eschatology. Thirdly, tribulation, which is an expectation, presents opportunity in mission to witness for his namesake. Fourthly, enduring mission is the only kind of Christian mission. Number five, mission must be biblically informed mission. And finally, mission requires a coming kingdom raised heads posture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait 
for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Father, pour out your spirit of grace to guide into all the truth. Give us eyes that see and ears of understanding. As we watch and make ready, help us not to be led astray, to stand firm and not grow cold, not to be concerned with the many, but respond to persecution and brothers falling away with witness to all the nations. Help us to fix our thoughts on the coming, unshakable, theocratic, messianic kingdom so that we ourselves become far more rooted and stable and spiritually healthy as a result. Embolden us to challenge and preach of the sins that most grieve you. Remind us daily, Father, that we do not need to fill our diaries with the busyness of the world, but rather busy ourselves with storing up your rewards. Shake the church from her self-righteous posture. Prepare our minds for action. Sober your bride. May the church set its hope fully on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lead us not into temptation to the entertainer nor insurrectionist, but deliver us from the evil one. For blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. In your name we pray, Jesus, Yeshua, Maranatha. As stated at the beginning of this message, the beauty of the Olivet Discourse is that it exposes both the digestion system of the congregant and the methods of the preacher. You see, the Olivet Discourse is unlike most messages we hear from the pulpit. And let me just touch on a few things. For example, Jesus begins his message with exhortation. We would say that's far too negative a start. You have to warn them to you first, even if it's the same congregation week in, week out. Indeed, the tone of the discourse is fearlessly negative, which jars with preachers who don't want to come across negative. But Jesus doesn't feel the need to sugarcoat the message if the overall tone is negative. If you have felt a little uncomfortable and perhaps bewildered during this message today, then good. <laughs> it means I have honoured the discourse. We have a habit of wrapping a message in a palatable box to take away with no homework and you feel good about yourself. This discourse polemically pushes against common preaching methods of today. Secondly, we tend to bundle our sermons to be about one thing with few points. And we could say, and I do say, that the Olivet Discourse is about preparation for the coming King. And yet Jesus touches on multiple topics and motifs and metaphors and signs, alluding to dozens of Old Testament passages, darting around from wars, the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, apostasy, the rapture, his appearance. He mentions false personas three times. We would just deal with it once. We only dare to preach one parable at a time, and yet Jesus gives intricate detail expounding upon the final years of the age and then teaches a three-part lesson and then depicts three pictures of being caught out on that day and then tells three consecutive parables and then tells of the Olivet judgment all in one go. 
The world can sit through three hours of Joe Rogan heading down rabbit holes. Can we not digest a platter? Jesus offers a proper square meal. He refuses to dispense chocolate milk. And so do I. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable and increases your heart rate, then it's doing its job. There are plenty of milkshake machines. I will not bottle feed you. I care too much for those who tune in. We have to stop babying the congregation. And thirdly, with regards to language and reference, Jesus used parables to confuse those who were not to know the mysteries. Jesus spoke in ways knowing his own disciples wouldn't understand him at first. He doesn't feel the need to continually offer bite-sized portions. Rather, he immerses them into his own world for three years, knowing eventually they will get it. Sometimes I will intentionally use a phrase or a style or a method knowing some people will not understand me. People will say, well, that's not the correct method because people won't be able to follow every point. That is the point. <laughs> we are going to see in years to come preaching that we've never heard before, preaching that will provoke preachers of today, preaching that our digestive systems will struggle with at first course. We don't always have to reference every scripture we quote either. Jesus and the apostles don't most of the time. There is assumed knowledge. When Jesus mentions the sheep and the goats, he assumes they understand the Old Testament references. There are dozens of references, allusions, quotations in this discourse that Jesus doesn't stop and hyperlink it for you. He doesn't baby them. There is assumed knowledge. If you understand every single thing I say, you have no homework. I'd be hand-to-mouth feeding you. With babies and toddlers, we don't speak to them with just a handful of words for years on end because they would never learn to speak. We immerse them in the language that we speak knowing they will pick it up. There is assumed knowledge and there is an assumption that you will not understand everything and that's okay. In fact, that's the pattern of Jesus and the apostles. The Holy Spirit will speak where he needs to speak and recall where he needs to recall. With regards to the response of the preacher then, if one follows the shape of the message, and we should if we are to honour Jesus and the shape he presents, it can grate on a fellow preacher. And it should grate if they have been offering neat meal deal packages week in, week out. For the congregant, it can disrupt your digestion system, and it should disrupt it if you have been feeding on bow-topped boxes. Rather than manifesting a spirit of offence, we can recognise that Jesus painted a picture of beauty that exposes our biblical illiteracy and our diet of decades of happy meals. We can look to our own posture and ask, why do I not know that I cannot follow, that I do not comprehend, that I cannot digest, and make a decision to immerse ourselves in the scriptures and solid teaching and preaching? We can say, you're speaking too fast, you're mentioning too many things, you've lost me. Or instead ask, why can I not receive it? Bottle-fed are offended by the chef when given a fine meal. We should desire homework. 
When I say the third part of the promise to Abraham can only be fulfilled once the first two parts are fulfilled, you could respond, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm annoyed at you that you haven't liquidated the message and now I'm tuning out because it wasn't pitched at the precise level for me. Or I could say, I have homework and I'm going to find out what those three parts of the covenant mean. And that other thing that you mentioned, I can't even remember, but I'm sure it will pop up again and I'm going to get it, whether the next time or the time after, I'm going to understand. It's challenging to the posture of the congregant and the preacher. Blessings.